Welcome to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Your host Mono here to bring you a slice of gaming life from Tokyo. February is really peak cold in Tokyo, but it's always coldest before the spring. Is that a phrase? Either way, Hanami will be here sooner than later. But before we can check out some Sakura Blossoms, there are games to play, including the retro action platformer Violet Wisteria from Kani Pro Games. I'm joined by lead developer Chris from Kani Pro Games to chat about the game's launch and what's next for the studio. It's an incredibly insightful look into what actually happens when you launch a video game, so I hope you'll enjoy. And no surprise here, I'm returning to Dreamland via Kirby's Return to Dreamland Deluxe. In the feature, we're traveling to the tallest building in Japan, Tokyo Skytree. Believe it or not, there's actually quite a lot of gaming-related things to enjoy here, so I'll run down what you need to know on your visit. And of course, the news, mostly about squids. Let's jump right into the games with Violet Wisteria and Chris from Kani Pro Games. Tokyo Game Life, only on the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. A few months ago, I had a feature on indie game development in Japan about the creation of the indie platformer slash action game, Violet Wisteria. Well, a few days ago, the game was released on Steam, so I wanted to follow up and get a feel for what happens when you actually launch a game to the public. And of course, I have a special guest that knows a little bit more about the game than I do. So guest, please introduce yourself. How you doing, man? Thank you for having me on again. This is Chris, some known to some people as Ultra Healthy Video Game Nerd. And I lead the indie studio, Connie Pro. And we just released Violet Wisteria a few days ago. So thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining me yet again. Let's have a refresher. Give us the pitch on Violet Wisteria. Sure, man. Uh, Violet Wisteria is a game straight out of 1991. That's a hardcore 2D action platformer meant to evoke the emotions of games that you played on the Sega Genesis and the TurboGrafx-16 or the PC Engine if you were in Japan. Mm. Uh, you know... All, all the Kavits of the era, you know, no, limited number of lives and continues, no save feature. It's, you know, one of those kinds of games where, you know, it's probably 45 or 50 minutes of gameplay, but getting good enough to be able to beat it, you know, mm. just like that in one shot takes a lot of practice. It's a, a full on modern retro game. What inspired you to take the leap to create your own game? And when did development start? I mean, basically just nobody makes these types of games anymore. I've been, you know, playing eight and 16 bit games for almost my whole life or about 30 years, you know, or more. I almost never moved on practically. Mm. So those games are just to me, it's when I say a video game, that's what I think of. And I mean, almost nobody makes games in that format anymore at all. Even many, many other games calling themselves retro inspired and this and that they don't actually use that format you know the beat it in one sitting you know go back to the beginning when you run out of lives right uh, kind of blueprint for video games so i was just like i'm gonna have to do it myself you know no one else is gonna do it. it's just i can't just sit around waiting for people to do it anymore so i decided that it had to be me <laughs> so, so that's why I did it. The first, the idea for it kind of, I guess, came into my mind uh, five or six years ago, probably. I, you know, was not a programmer or anything like that. I had zero knowledge um, about anything IT. I've always been very computer illiterate. 
I didn't think that I was going to be able to actually do the coding myself. When I just saw just how many people now make games, it just seemed like every other person was like, oh yeah, I just tried out a little bit of game dev here and there. It didn't come to anything. I'm like, well, if everybody can do it, I can do it too, can't I? <laughs> I eventually found Game Maker Studio software, which is very user-friendly. You know, I watched some tutorials and just over two years ago, I basically started the actual development process. It took around two years to make uh, because I myself did not do the graphics. I hired other people <laughs> to draw the, the illustrations. Uh, so that's why it was able to get done in a, a relatively short amount of time. But I had been, you know, kind of drawing things out on paper and pencil for years before that. I basically already had the idea in full. We first talked about the development of the game last July. At that time, did you think a February release date would be possible? Yeah, absolutely. I think I was I was planning on early this year, uh, and, and that's what happened. The game was probably extremely close to being finished, I think, by the time we were talking in July. It was just knowing myself and knowing how much of a beginner I am, I needed to take a lot of extra time for debugging and just catching things that I had missed, you know, and mm. tweaking things here and there. So, yeah, yeah, this is pretty much exactly when I was hoping to release it. What's changed in the game since we last talked about it? It seems like there's been quite a few adjustments based on player feedback. You know, I've had to continually make it easier and easier <laughs> because it was extremely difficult. First of all, not a whole lot of people just think that NES games are the normal type of difficulty for a video game. Most people right. think that that is just incredibly hard now. Whereas for mm. me, that's perfectly, it's just average what, what games are. So there was that. There was also, I think, just the issue of, you know, I had been playing it for a long time. That's what happens when you make a game. It happens to a lot of solo developers. You just play a game for a really long time. You get really good at your game. And you're like, oh, this is too easy now. I need to do this and this. And it becomes really difficult. So yeah, it was a lot of, you know, kind of making things a, a lot more user-friendly and easier. I guess the biggest thing that changed since we talked is I added an additional difficulty setting. So you can choose the practice difficulty setting and uh, you have unlimited continues, but you can't play the full game. It'll end after stage seven ah. if you play that way. So it's it's you know it's still like the older games, basically. There's, there's some games that do that. Even though a lot of games are pretty easy these days, there's definitely a contingent of fans who love difficult games. Would you say the game was developed to focus on this audience? And the difficulty modes were implemented to give players an entry point into this genre of difficult retro platformers. I mean, it, it was made for the the hardest of diehard retro gamers, <laughs> basically. <laughs> it, was, it was made for people in my demographic, you know, because nobody makes games for us. It's for people who probably have some experience with 2D platformers, you know, mainly people for people who still play their 8 and 16-bit games it was the intended audience. It's still early, but you've got your first batch of player impressions now that the game is out. Currently on Steam, there are over a dozen reviews, and they're all positive. Was there anything that surprised you about the post-launch feedback? I've seen some people playing it. A number of people have put up videos on uh, Twitch. Uh, there's a couple on YouTube. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's too hard now, actually. I, hmm. That was what scared me the most, I think, was just that there's this kind of very intricate attack system that I've put in the game that is really fun once you get used to it, but it's not exactly intuitive in the beginning. It, it's, it is a high bar to entry mm. uh, for the average person. I was worried that that was going to just, you know, people might just feel like that was a dead end. Uh, and it doesn't seem that way. 
I think a lot of people are actually really giving it a chance and finding that just with a little bit of practice, you start to get that the attack system. There's a lot to it. And it's really rewarding. I've been really happy. I would say it doesn't have a massive number of reviews yet, but yeah, they've, they've, they have been positive. So what are you looking for when you're watching a player stream? Are you hoping that they do something specific or are you trying to use it as like a learning experience? Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about how far people can get. I'm, I'm still waiting for somebody to beat it, basically. <laughs> I'm, I'm just enjoying it, really. Yeah, you know, nowadays when a game with hype comes out, we because there's people who play games for a living now, we usually get these videos of people beating it on day one. Right. There's people who beat it, no death on day one, no damage on day one. You know, literally a couple hours after it comes out. Some of them are just people who are just really hardcore streamers. But some of them, I'm, I'm almost positive, are getting review copies mm. also. So right. that they already had it ready to go. Yeah. So that, you know, was not going to happen with Violet Wisteria. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I guess I'm just kind of curious about who's going to beat it first. Uh, someone got to stage seven. Ooh. Yeah. That's, that's pretty crazy. close. <laughs> I know. It's very good. I'm curious about the country split thus far. Are most of the cells in America or does Japan also have a big share? The most is America, but second is Japan. Mm, that's cool. And then there's just a few others here and there, you know, Europe and South America. The most recent ones, it was like even America and Japan. But I think on like the first day or two when there was the most, I think it was probably like half North America. Do you have any sales from some unexpected countries? Is someone in the Vatican City playing Violet Wisteria? I think maybe I saw someone. There was definitely like one or two in the Middle East. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, but, but you know, there's, I mean, Steam is worldwide. You know, there's, there's people all over the world who play video games now. So, you know, if you're, if you're in the loop, it's not exactly surprising. Walk me through launching the game. What kind of things did you need to prepare beforehand? And what was the most unexpected part of the launch process? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Steam, man. So Steam has the, is a tool called Steamworks, hmm. uh, which is basically the, the part of the store where, you know, developers upload their game and manage all the things that you need in order to get your store page ready and all that stuff. Not much of it is intuitive. It's hmm. almost like every step along the way, I almost had to go, you know, look up a tutorial or something like that. Kind of, you need all these different versions of your key art first of all. That hmm. in, in of itself, because remember, I'm not doing the artwork, right? So there's that stuff, and yeah, but I mean, I guess once you learn, because it has a sort of special method of like uploading your game builds. I guess once you got that part, that that part of it, it was not like so difficult. But basically, what happens is make the store page and then that gets approved uh, and then after the store page gets approved you can submit a game build and then once you submitted a game build then that gets approved and after two weeks after your game build has been approved you can launch it anytime you want that's how steam works so yeah. the game build was approved probably late january for you yeah. And the thing is, once you, once you get a one game build approved, you can upload fixed ones anytime you want. Hmm. You just need to get it approved once. So that's basically how that works. And, and once you get to that point, really, it's just, you just hit the button. I made sort of a mistake. I chose the time you, you specify, you know, a specific date and time that the game launches. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of thinking that, okay, if you choose four in the afternoon on a certain day, then it's going to launch in each country in its own time zone at four in the afternoon on that day. Oh, yes. So that's, that's not true. 
uh, you know, if, so if I specify it's launching at four in the afternoon in Japan, it's going to launch at that instant in time in the entire world, mm. whatever time it is in those countries. But up until then, kind of, you know, the Japanese news websites have been giving about Wisteria the most press. So mm. I, I prioritize Japan. Yeah, because of that. What's something you think Steam could change to make the launch process a bit smoother? It really would be nice if they explained the software that they have for uploading the build at first. Mm. But once you get it once, it's easy. But it's, I mean, I don't understand how a person could figure out on their own. It's just like crazy. It's like, <laughs> it's all this crap, and I don't know what any of it means, you know? Yeah, there's just, I don't know. It's just things aren't named. It's like they're get, trying to give these things specialized names. I don't know what any of it means. <laughs> I guess it's not difficult once you know what goes where, but that was a process for me personally. Otherwise, I would say really, I mean, I don't think the sign-up process was very difficult. Is there anything you need to do for Steam Deck verification, for example? Do they ask you about that? I should do it. I mean, no, I think there's a page where you can go and apply. There might be some extra, I don't know, there might be like, for example, a specifically sized capsule image you might need or something like that. Mm. Uh, a lot of people have tried it on the Steam Deck and they said it works perfectly. So I really should do awesome. that. Yeah. You know, it's just another, it's just one more step of, you know, reading a bunch of stuff that I'm not familiar <laughs> with. You know, so I, I put these things off. Yeah. The Steam Deck can be pretty random anyways. Sometimes games will work. Sometimes they don't. So mm. it's really like hit and miss, but it's good to hear that Violet Wisteria can be played portably. Did you ever think that, Oh, Violet Wisteria is actually a portable game now. I just never really considered it. I mean, it certainly shouldn't require very high PC specifications to play. Mm. Okay, now that the game has launched, what are you doing now? Are you focusing on promotion or dedicating time to bug fixes or further adjustments to the game? Yeah, I mean, I'm still looking for people who want to do reviews or that kind of thing. I am hoping to work with the Indie Gaming Collective I applied to that. So that's kind of like a group of people, you know, streamers uh, who who almost exclusively play indie games. Hopefully that's going to work out. Uh, there are a few people I've sent keys to, I think, are going to promote it. Or, I mean, at least write, you know, like articles or reviews. I think hmm. there's at least one or two. Kind of, I guess, one of the best breaks I've had so far is there was a Brazilian YouTuber who has a pretty good following who ended up doing a quick Let's Play video of it on his site. So that, that was pretty lucky. Uh, so that got it a bit of attention at least in Brazil. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I've like I said, I've, I've sent out review keys and I can check which ones have been activated or not. And a few people apparently have tried it out. So I think they may eventually end up covering it. Uh, I am always, you know, looking for more places. Probably some of the next things that are going to happen, I will be in some more in-person game shows in Japan. There's, there's another one, Tokyo Indie Game something, uh, coming up on March 4th. It's in Kichijoji, so I'll be there. Uh, I have applied for Bit Summit in the summer, uh, and there is an indie game show that Konami puts on. I've applied, but I think the, the spaces there are limited, uh, so we'll see. Hmm. Once the dust settles, the next big thing is going to be looking for who's willing to, to put it on consoles. Definitely do want to get it published on consoles. I've talked to at least one person who said it could be done. So it's going to be about looking into, uh, you know, what, what the best option is for that. Obviously, you want to try to get it out in all regions. But yeah, man, I mean, 
the the best I can do really now, I guess, is just hope people enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are several upcoming indie game events in Tokyo. You went to some before the game launched, but now since the game has launched, do you feel like there's any kind of pressure off of you? You can just kind of show the game and say, oh, it's available now at these game shows. Yeah, definitely. I think at the very least, I've proven that I can make a playable game from start to finish that has very few bugs. Haven't seen anybody run into a bug or a game crash yet. I did catch one person who found a sort of workaround, uh, one of the bosses. Ah. So so <laughs> congratulations to him. You know, That's the spirit of, of wanting to beat the game. It's that's a feature, that's... not a bug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it'll, it'll get patched out eventually, but for now, enjoy. What's next for Arcani Pro Games? Do you want to make a sort of deluxe version of Violet Wisteria or a sequel or try your hand at another IP? When I released the very first demo of Violet Wisteria, it was like insanely difficult. Mm. Uh, so basically I kind of kept that version of the game and then I made like a second version, which is the Violet Wisteria that everybody's playing now. Mm. Uh, it's much, much, you know, it's a lot more refined. It's just a lot, you know, the progression of difficulty is better. I still have that old game file and I kind of want to make some DLC out of it. Mm. Uh, like, you know, like expert mode or something like that. Cause I, I can beat it, <laughs> you know, somebody <laughs> right. out there might want to try it. I don't know. It's, it's pretty intense. I absolutely want to keep making games. I absolutely want to make another one. I'm already kind of sketching things out. I already have relatively clear ideas for what I want to do next. I think it's an issue of, can I fund another game? Mm. Uh, because I put a lot of my own money into Violet Wisteria. I actually spent quite a bit of money mm. on getting graphics done for it. I'm single. I am have an effectively middle-class income. I have no debt. I can do that. I can do that once. But, right. you know, there's, it's not clear if it's going to bring back that money yet or not. So I can't necessarily do that again. So we'll, we'll see, you know, and if it doesn't, I'm, I will find another way. There's many ways, you know, I could look for people who are willing to do what I call it, revenue share. I can look for people who maybe are willing to work for less <laughs> money or, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Hey, I'd even try using AI or something like that. There, there's options, but yeah, absolutely. I, I would love to really start diving into the next game soon. I've just got, also, as I'm doing all this game stuff, I'm still working full-time. And last question. Now that the protagonist, Fujiko, is a bona fide original video game character, there is a non-zero percent chance that she could appear in Smash Brothers. Have you given <laughs> any thought to her Smash moveset? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I'm pretty sure that before Fujiko appears in uh, Smash Brothers, she's definitely going to appear in in somebody's doujin comic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, man, she, I mean, yeah, her moves, what would her moveset be? I mean, because really all she has is the sword attacks and the magics. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it would have to be, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that her attacks would have to be based around the color attack system in somehow, right. some form or another. I don't know how that would interact with the, with the, the enemy players, but yeah, it, it would be fun. <laughs> Is there any level you hope would be her level in Smash? Stage three, I hmm. think. Stage three is, is probably my favorite as far as the environment and music and just stage design. It's this kind of like evening 
I don't know how to describe the, the sky color. It's like orangish, but it's like, it's very distant. It's, it's reminiscent of a certain stage in Valis one. Hmm. Um, and there's these kind of like skeleton pterodactyls in the background flying back and forth. There's a, there's a real mood to it. Yeah. Hmm. I think it'd like to be stage three. Awesome. Well, let's wrap up. Where can people find you and where can people find Violet Wisteria? Uh, I am on Twitter as Connie Pro and Ultra Healthy Video Game Nerd. Both of those accounts are mine. Uh, Violet Wisteria is on Steam right now. It's there on Steam for now. It's PC only uh, at the moment, but it will be there. Great. And listeners, the links to everything are in the podcast description. Chris from Connie Pro Games. Once again, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. appreciate it. Before we talk Kirby, check out this show on the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. In today's age, you need a podcast you can trust. That's why you need Hair of the Dogcast, entertaining and well-informed discussions on both video games and beer. Meet our local podcast team, Dylan. I'm out here on the street, Brad, and everyone's clamoring for better podcasts. Our new rookie correspondent, Tyler. I play The Witcher. And I'm Brad, <laughs> and I'm slowly learning to hate myself in video games. <laughs> And Dylan's reporting to us live from Kingdom Hearts 3. There's a lot of Frozen here. <laughs> Too much Frozen. Hair of the Dogcast is a podcast you can trust. On your favorite podcast app every Wednesday or whenever I decide to post it. Only on the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Big news, everyone. Kirby has returned to Dreamland. Did he ever leave? The game that came out before Kirby's return to Dreamland on Wii was Kirby's Mass Attack, which strangely launched only a few months beforehand. In that game, he does go to the Popopo Islands, so I suppose that it's not Dreamland. Thus, yes, he did return to Dreamland from the islands. It seems weird to make a big deal out of it, though. I'm sure Kirby leaves Dreamland every now and then. You wouldn't call a Zelda game The Legend of Zelda Return to Hyrule. Sorry, I always thought this was a strange title. Did you know that in Japan, it's just called Kirby Wii? So yes, the deluxe version, the game I'm going to talk about, is called Kirby Wii Deluxe in Japan. So the Wii name still lives on. Anyways, Kirby's Return to Dreamland Deluxe, a remake and or remaster of the 2011 Wii game came out a few days ago. Believe it or not, I've actually never played the original game. So this is a brand new adventure for me. The original game actually got some pretty middling reviews, but among Kirby fans, Return to Dreamland is pretty well regarded. So I have high hopes. The question for many is, can you go back to the traditional 2D Kirby gameplay after you've ventured into the third dimension? And I say, yes, of course. It's not quite the jump from 2D to 3D Mario, but the 2D Kirby games are still distinct and hold up, including this one. While not as fresh as Forgotten Land, it's still delivering on that fast-paced yet cheery Kirby gameplay. Developed by HAL, the director of the original game was Shinya Kumazaki. This was his directorial follow-up from Superstar Ultra, one of the best Kirby games. He's had his hand in pretty much every Kirby project since, including being the co-director of Forgotten Land. Kirby fans love to talk about Sakurai and Shimomura, but when it comes to what Kirby is today, Kumazaki is your guy. And he's a great follow on Instagram. Kumazaki is credited as the general director of this game, whatever that means. Vanpool also worked on this game, probably in a similar role to their work on Kirby and the Forgotten Land. Hitching their ride to the Kirby train during the Switch era was very smart on their part, as the series really seems to be at a high point these days. But let's return to Return to Dreamland Deluxe. 
I've knocked out two worlds and played around in the minigame mode a bit, so I'm still pretty early. The game has a couple of gimmicks. Its claim to fame is the four-player co-op, and I'm not just talking about four Kirbys. You can play as DDD, Meta Knight, and Bandana D, each with their own abilities. Gotta admit, I'm mostly playing by myself, but the game certainly feels more crafted around a single-player experience than one that needs four players. So if you've got no one else to play with, don't worry, because the core gameplay is still solid, and it's not impaired by playing solo. Though, come on, I really wish this game had more online features. It does have some, which I'll talk about in a bit, but they're quite minimal. But back to why is this game different from other Kirby games? Another big addition are the super abilities, which are powered up versions of normal ones. These are gigantic, absurd, screen-clearing attacks that can devastate foes and even destroy the landscape. There was one section with a bunch of trees, and I summoned a fire dragon to burst through and destroy all of them. Cool. These also open up brief segments in alternate dimensions, where you need to keep moving and outrun an evil wall of doom. These segments don't have copy abilities, and their design is certainly unorthodox, compared to a lot of Kirby levels. It's a nice change of pace and challenges the player to use Kirby's innate abilities in new ways. I think a lot of people's immediate reaction to this game will be, well, this is not as interesting or exciting as Forgotten Land. That may be true, but I think the levels are still well-paced and cleverly designed. Each one is typically themed around a specific copy ability, and it does the whole Mario Kishoten Ketsu thing, where you learn how to use the ability, are then gradually introduced to new challenges, then use everything you've learned. But you also have the freedom to use a different copy ability than the one the level is built around, and you can do unique things. But you also have the freedom to use a different copy ability the level isn't built around and do some unique things there. A big part of Kirby is kind of making your own fun, whether it's giving you specific copy ability challenges or tackling the level in an unorthodox way. Most of the copy abilities so far are classic Kirby mainstays, like Bomb and Fire, but they have been updated to include abilities that appeared in future games, so it's good that HAL is not so dead set on completely copying the original game. You hear that, Game Freak? There are some copy abilities I've never encountered before, like water. You can glide across water with it, which raises some questions on Kirby's divinity. The game has two brand new abilities, Sand and Mecha. I haven't tried Mecha yet, but Sand has a versatile moveset. You can make a big Sandman fist or even build a sandcastle. Kind of crazy it wasn't in the original game, since the entire second world is a desert one. Shockingly, there's a ton of things that have not been turned into Kirby powers yet. He does have a poison ability in Robobot, which means somebody at HAL asked, what should Kirby swallow? And someone answered, I don't know, poison? But the bulk of the gameplay is your typical 2D Kirby affair. If you've jumped into the series with Forgotten Land, you might think that Return to Dreamland is a bit too simple or straightforward. I can see that, but I do think it is a good entry point for 2D Kirby titles. Kirby is often called a platformer, but it's really not. It's an action game. You blow through enemies and solve some puzzles every now and then. This is why I rank Kirby above other Nintendo platformers like Yoshi and even DK, because it really has a distinct gameplay design, and it's not just some rendition of the Mario-style platforming. There's a lot of abilities, a lot of collectibles, the levels are structured in a coherent and exciting way. If you want more Kirby in your life, this is it. I actually haven't played Star Allies, so I can't compare the two Switch 2D Kirby titles, but most seem to agree that this one is much better. Ironically, both heavily advertised co-op, but like I said earlier, it's more of an extra thing for this game, while Star Allies is more heavily based around it. 
I have to say one of the biggest positives for me is the art style. The game looks phenomenal. Kirby is at peak roundness here. It's got a more cel-shaded look than Forgotten Land, and characters have this thick black outline that really helps them stand out. Compared to the first game, the color palette is softer and less saturated, plus there's, of course, far more detail in the tile set and backgrounds. HAL has really given this game a visual design that separates itself from Forgotten Land. I mean, Kirby is Kirby. It's hard to make multiple Kirby games stand out in terms of visuals, but they did it here. It's always great to see these iconic retro game characters in glorious HD and 4K. I keep thinking that they will eventually peak at making Kirby look good, but HAL keeps topping themselves. One of the biggest new additions is Mary Mago Land, a minigame theme park where you can earn rewards like masks for Kirby to wear and items to bring into the main levels. Subgames are always a big part of Kirby, but HAL has decided to jam as many as possible in here, including a lot of returning minigames. There are two big ones, Samurai Kirby and Checkerboard Chase, both in the running for one of the best minigames ever. If you made a list of top five minigames, I think both would be in there. Not much has changed with Samurai Kirby. It's now in HD and 3D, which is surreal for someone who has played so much of the original. Waddle Doo is also replaced by Magalore. Shockingly, there is an online portion to it, Samurai Kirby 100. A hundred Kirbys all play at the same time and get a ranking based on how fast you hit the button. Only one try per day can be saved to the rankings though. My first try, I ranked at 33, which is not bad. That's top third at least. Here's the secret to Samurai Kirby. First, you sort of need to already halfway be pressing the button. And while this is gambling, it might be worth to try and predict when the exclamation mark will come up. If you botch it, you get a fault. So it's a free try. Might as well do it. I have yet to be faster than 16, but 13 is my goal. And Checkerboard Chase is back from Kirby 64. You throw out a beam to make blocks and your opponent fall into the abyss. I waxed poetic about it in a previous episode, but if you haven't played it on NSO yet, you can do it here. The new version is very faithful to the original. It has four difficulties, which is great since all the other minigames only have three, plus the tile set and colors are the exact same as in the N64 version. The new music isn't as good, but you can unlock the old music by getting all the achievements for a specific minigame. The controls here are a bit more precise than the original, so you can really challenge the physics of the game by positioning yourself on the edge of a row. These are my two favorites, probably due to pure nostalgia, but honestly, all the minigames are worth playing. Most are from other games as well, like the shooting one from Kirby Superstar Ultra and Smash Ride from Squeak Squad. The original subgame for Return, Ninja Dojo, is a lot of fun and very intense. You get one shot to hit a target, and it can appear in about a dozen different ways, so don't psych yourself out. Kirby really should be a ninja more often. There are two brand new ones, Magalore's Tome Trackers and Booming Blasters. Tome Trackers has you find a book that Magalore is holding. Kind of Mario Brothers vibes here with the way the platforms are structured. Sometimes it's all about getting lucky with positioning, but it's a good minigame. Booming Blasters is like an arena fighter. Think of like the tank minigame from We Play or Custom Robo. There's a top-down view and you have a laser gun to blast your opponents. Whoever survives the longest wins. You need to think about ammo. You can upgrade your gun, shoot lob shots, Plus, there's a super attack every now and then. It's a bit more complex than the other minigames, but it's the most let's-just-fight minigame out of everything. Magoland has an achievement system, which should give players a bit more incentive to keep playing these minigames, instead of just trying it once and thinking, all right, that was okay. 
you can probably clear them pretty quickly. I already have half of the achievements and probably only put about an hour or two into that mode. But I love me some mini games, and they brought back the two best ones. So, best sub game selection ever? I think so. Though, again, what if these were online? Checkerboard Chase Online. I guess you could do it on NSO, but I want it with random matchmaking. Again, still quite early, but I'm having a good time thus far. It's an interesting thing to follow up Forgotten Land with. Nintendo did something similar with Zelda, completely rebooting the franchise, only to immediately follow it up with a 2D remake. But unlike Link's Awakening, HAL added a ton of new features and additions to this game, so a lot of meat on this bone. Like Metroid, Kirby games are all about 100%ing them, and there should be enough here to keep players happy for a while. Though another huge addition is a mode where you play as Magalore and gradually unlock your powers. However, you have to beat the game first before you can even try it, so I'll report back once I do and give my final thoughts on this game later on. That's it for games, now for the feature on Tokyo Skytree. I've talked about a lot of gaming-related places to visit on the podcast. Most are solely dedicated to games, but I wanted to talk about a tourist hotspot that is more game-heavy than you'd expect. Tokyo Skytree, the tallest structure in Japan. This won't be a complete rundown of every little thing to see in Skytree. I'm keeping it focused on games here. But, of course, some food will pop up. It's just inevitable. While many refer to it as just Tokyo Skytree, it's more than just a tower. Built around it is a massive shopping complex called Solamachi, or Tokyo Skytree Town. Here you will find dozens, if not hundreds, of shops, restaurants, exhibits, and even an aquarium. I've been here several times without even going up the actual tower. There are really only two reasons to go up the tower, the day view and the night view. Once you've done both, I mean, that's pretty much it. But they do have some pop-up shops or events inside the actual tower to keep luring people in. As a tourist, you're probably thinking, well, I gotta go up the tower. But ironically, I think it's more interesting for Tokyo residents, since you have a better lay of the land and know, oh, that's Shinjuku, that's Ginza, that way is Yokohama. But the actual tower part is worth going up if you like that sort of thing. Once you're done with the tower, there's a ton of shopping and eating to do, specifically on the fourth floor of the Solomachi shopping complex. It's an easy one to find since it's the floor most geared towards tourists. Plus, it's on the same level as the Sky Tree, so you'll find your way there if you plan on going up the tower. On this floor are several key shops I want to highlight that will make you salivate if you're a Nintendo fan. Pokemon Center Skytree Town, the Kirby Cafe, Kirby Cafe The Store, the Nanoblock Store, the Bandai Gashapon Store, and the Medicom Toy Store. That's six shops that are gaming-related, or at least quasi-gaming-related. There's also Hello Kitty and Shonen Jump Shops, which are maybe gaming-adjacent. First up is Pokemon Center Skytree Town. This is one of the more visually striking shops on the floor. It has a lot of floor space, that big yellow Pokemon sign, and it's right across from the doors that take you outside to the Skytree. This is primo space, and the rent is something that only Pokemon can afford. Here's the dark secret of the Pokemon Centers. While many of them are visually unique, they mostly sell the exact same items. There are some regionally exclusive goods, but even those eventually make their way to the other centers. But if you're looking for something only from this shop, there are plushies and other merch of the Skytree with Pikachu and the shop's mascot, Rayquaza. I mean, how perfect is that? Sky Tower? Sky Tree? They might have made this entire structure solely just to put Rayquaza in it. 
all the Pokemon centers in Japan have a unique mascot for each shop, along with a big statue of it. But I think the Rayquaza statue is probably the best out of all of them. It shows Rayquaza bursting through the roof, with Pikachu riding on him. It has a very dynamic pose and is quite large. Not life-sized, but it's still pretty big. You might miss it if you're not looking, but on Rayquaza is a signature from none other than Tsunekazu Ishihara, the president of the Pokemon Company. This is a pretty recent trend, but I've seen Ken Sugimori's and Junichi Masuda's signatures at other Pokemon centers, so it's a fun thing to notice. The interior of the shop is not as open as some of the more recent Pokemon centers, so it can be pretty crowded on busier days. Near the register, you'll notice another striking thing, Rayquaza number two. This time, it's a shiny Mega Rayquaza. There was a funny sign in English that said, do not touch Rayquaza, a few years ago, but I didn't see it on my last visit. Still, don't touch him. Outside of these flourishes, it's a typical Pokemon Center. I think the Ginza and Shibuya branches are much better in terms of design and size, but this one is more conveniently located to other notable shops and landmarks. Next up is the Kirby Cafe, which is located outside of the fourth floor and right across from the actual Sky Tree. Again, primo space here. It's so strange to stare up at the tallest structure in Japan, then when you turn around, you're looking straight at the Kirby Cafe. In a previous episode, I did a really thorough breakdown on the Kirby Cafe, so check that out if you want more detailed thoughts. But if you didn't listen to that episode yet, it's a themed restaurant about Kirby and friends. It feels like an adult coffee shop than a colorful Candyland or theme park. Even the music, while classic Kirby tracks, are redone in jazz or piano renditions. I think kids will still like it though, considering all the food is shaped like Kirby, and there's a lot of Kirby figures in the shop. Wispy Woods is the biggest thing as he's smack dab in the middle of the cafe. The food is not super amazing. I mean, it's themed restaurant food. You go there for the experience and not the cuisine, but it's not bad. The food visually is quite spectacular and great for photos. Be ready to drop about 2,000 yen per person though. If you're not that into Kirby, I think you can skip it. But if you're a Kirby diehard, I mean, you gotta go. Word of warning though, it's tough to get an actual reservation. You can't just show up and go in. You have to book ahead of time online. And by ahead, I mean a month ahead. I'm looking at it right now and every single spot in March is filled. And you can't reserve for April yet. So the timing can be incredibly strict. Check at least a month ahead or even six weeks ahead if you plan on going. If you're a tourist, it's way easier to get in on weekdays, but right now it's nearing peak travel season, so be wary. The cafe has some merch inside as well, but what if you want some Kirby Cafe merch yet can't get a reservation? Never fear because they recently opened up Kirby Cafe the store that anyone can pop into. It's right across from the Pokemon Center, so yes, you can see both Rayquaza and Kirby if you stand in the right spot. I've talked about the Yamashiroya toy shop in a previous episode, which has the most Kirby merch in Japan. However, there's a ton of exclusive goods here at the Kirby Cafe shop. Obviously, all themed around food and the Chef Kirby design. There's bowls, utensils, general cookware, all with that Kirby flavor. There's a shocking amount of Kirby burger merch. There's a porcelain cocotte, which is a cookware that you can both cook in and serve food out of, shaped like a Kirby burger. There's also a big Kirby Burger pouch that you can just carry around. When I first visited the cafe, this is what I ordered, and it did get a big push in the Forgotten Land, so it makes perfect sense here. If you already own enough pans and plates, 
There's, of course, a lot of Kirby plushies, books, socks, even glasses for whatever reason. Those are the big three Nintendo-focused things, but there are other shops that carry some unique gaming merch. One is the official Nanoblock store. If you don't know what Nanoblocks are, think Lego, but smaller. Much, much smaller. Nanoblock is from Japan, and there's not a lot of space here, so it makes sense that somebody would take an iconic toy like Lego and make it smaller. I'm not a Lego person, but I do like Nanoblock. They're cheap, you can get a figure for under 1,000 yen, and there's a ton of awesome designs, both gaming and non-gaming related. On the gaming end, the franchise with the most Nanoblock designs, hmm, what could it be? What franchise has a lot of characters? That's right, we are circling back to Pokemon. There's a ton of Pokemon Nanoblock sets. Originally, it was just the starters and Pikachu, but it greatly expanded over the years to consist of many different mons. There are normal sets that you buy just to make one figure, then smaller loot bags where you get a random Pokemon, and for the more serious folks, some are quite large and will take up a lot of shelf space. Last time I visited the shop, there were huge figures of Dialga and Palkia for about 5,000 yen each, which is fairly expensive for a blocky plastic legendary, but much cheaper than pretty much any Lego set that size. These are great souvenirs since they're fairly cheap, it's more than just a toy, it's an activity, and they do look nice when they're finished. I have a few and they're sturdy, they won't just suddenly crumble. If Pokemon is not your thing, on the Nintendo side, they also have a lot of Kirby-related ones. Square Kirby is always weird to me, but what are you going to do? Most are in the random bags, about 660 yen each, so you might not get exactly what you want. You can buy a box with all the designs, though, if you are really hardcore. In the Series 1 bag, there's four different Kirbys, Waddle Dee, Meta Knight, and Krako. I can see someone getting upset if they wanted Kirby and got, well, Krako. There are some bigger sets, too, like a Dreamland diorama with several characters, so if you're dying for Kirby, get that one. The gaming nanoblocks don't stop there, though. Other companies have joined the bandwagon. They're Space Invaders, including a cabinet, Mega Man, Street Fighter, and also a ton of anime ones like Evangelion. I highly recommend picking up something, even if you're not a Lego person. They're cheap and pretty fun to make. If you're less into building toys and more into buying them, there's two shops I want to close out with. There's the official Bandai Gashapon shop, which opened up last year. Imagine you filled a room with dozens of Gashapon machines. That's it. That's the store. There's typically always something gaming related in there, but yes, it is mostly Pokemon. Or Kirby. But a ton of other franchises get Gashapon figures. Bomberman, Earthbound, Sakuna, Genshin Impact. You never know what you'll bump into. There's really been an explosion in Gashapon stores these past few years. When I came to Tokyo in 2017, you really had to find some hidden shop in Akihabara to get your fix. But now, Bandai and other companies are just opening up these huge complexes in touristy areas with hundreds of machines. These are fun, cheap souvenirs, so I totally get the appeal. And lastly, there's the Medicom Toy Store. They sell these types of high-end artsy vinyl figures, but they do sell some smaller, more affordable ones for about a thousand yen. Not so many gaming franchises, but they do have the big boys, Mario and Zelda. There's a Medicom line that makes figures of characters as they appeared on the box art. Think of the Famicom box art for Super Mario Bros. 1. That Mario has a figure with the weird proportions and the mushroom and everything. I have two from the Mario line, Mario and Luigi from the original Mario Bros. arcade art. These look awesome. 
Mario has his weird blue and pink colors, and Luigi with the green and brown. These things are easily among my favorite pieces of gaming merch I own, and they're not rare or expensive. I will say that the stock at the Metacom shop can be a bit iffy. I've been there where they didn't carry any of the Mario or Zelda figures, so keep that in mind. But if you go to a big toy shop, like in Yodobashi Camera or wherever, they will probably carry them. So that's gaming in Tokyo Skytree. There's definitely enough there to lighten your wallet. And there are dozens of other interesting shops in Skytree as well. There are shops that sell items from Kyoto, a bunch of food stalls, Japanese souvenir stores, jewelry, a shop that sells fake plastic food. You can easily spend more than a few hours exploring all of Skytree. The Asakusa Skytree combo is a tried and true traveler experience. Explore a massive temple, eat some okonomiyaki, then climb a tower and buy Kirby merch. What more do you need? I'll throw out one food recommendation for Skytree though. Gion Sujiri on the sixth floor. It's a small matcha sweets shop that sells amazing parfaits and ice cream. Trust me, the price is worth it. So that's the feature on gaming at Skytree. Now let's look at the news. I can't ignore it. There was a massive leak regarding Tears of the Kingdom. Now, I won't spoil a single thing from the leak. No specifics. But we do have to talk about it. The collector's edition of the game will be bundled with an art book, similar to the collector's edition for Breath of the Wild. Well, the art book somehow, some way, got leaked. Every single page is now on the internet somewhere. I've really got no idea how this happened since the game is a good three months away from launch. But what's done is done. And we've gotten perhaps the biggest look at the game yet. Or have we? Yes, the art book does answer some questions, but it raises a million more. There's a big difference between seeing a picture and understanding what it conveys. And if you think about it, this is the book that comes with the game at launch. So it won't have anything major in it. It's not like you will see the final boss or there's a big summary of the plot. I'd love to break down every single piece of art, but for spoilers sake, I won't. Just know that I am more excited about the game after seeing it. I'm not a spoiler-adverse person at all. If there's a leak, I want to know about it. I'm one of those weirdos who wants to see every Pokemon before the game comes out. I was following Breath of the Wild leaks before that game came out, and it didn't hamper my enjoyment of the game at all. And realistically, I'll forget most of what I saw. 80 days is a long time. Although a lot of the pictures are confusing and vague in terms of what it means for the game, I can at least say the game's art direction is striking and Tears of the Kingdom has its own visual identity compared to Breath of the Wild. I think a concern for this game is, well, if it's the same map and it takes place soon after the first game, will it be too similar? And after seeing the art book, I don't think so at all. You'll be able to differentiate the styles between Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. Nintendo has been incredibly protective about showing off this game thus far, And I think this is advantageous since you want to surprise players and the sense of discovery is a vital aspect of Zelda. But keep the lid on too long and someone's going to pry it open. It's unfortunate for many that the art book got leaked, but it might also be a blessing since everyone who has peeked at it is now way more excited for the game. We will definitely get a trailer before launch, maybe around May, and we might get some more info before that. I doubt there will be a Zelda Direct, so I don't expect a big information blowout. Nintendo really likes to wait until about a month before release before going full throttle on the marketing hype cycle. A ton of Splatoon marketing didn't even start until late August and early September, 
and we knew so little about New Horizons until the Direct a few weeks before. So everyone, just be patient. Please survive until May 12th. But if you need something, Bandai has you covered. Tears of the Kingdom gummies are coming to Japan in May. You can eat five different flavors of Choo Choo, the slime enemies of the franchise. Each package comes with a sword-shaped pick as well. The Pikmin gummies were actually quite good, and I'm not a gummy guy, but I'll pick some of these up. Even though they are branded Tears of the Kingdom, the screenshot is from Breath of the Wild, as are all the swords. So no, we didn't get a gummy leak. I'm hyped about the upcoming collaborations in Japan, though. I don't think it will be as crazy as Splatoon's marketing push, but it could still be a big one. And hey, let's talk about Splatoon. The newest season, Fresh Season, is only a few days away, and it looks like it could be the biggest update to the game yet. There's over a dozen new weapon kits, including two entirely brand new specials. And yes, the dreaded Kraken has returned. This was a much-hated special in Splatoon 1 due to its power and speed, but now it's back. Probably not as strong, but I still fear it. Also new is the Super Chump, which launches a bunch of water balloons that land and then create a series of small explosions. Imagine if you could launch a bunch of suction bombs. I'm not sure how effective it will be, but I at least want to try it out. Plus, the special on the new NSAP 89 is that special, so I want to play around with it. There's also a ton of gear, both brand new and returning. We also finally got more locker decorations, including giant items like hockey sticks. I still haven't unlocked the biggest locker yet, so it might be a while before I can take advantage of it. And we are getting new table turf cards, and online battles are here, but it seems to be friends only, or you make a lobby. No random matchmaking. And there's a new stage set amongst some sandy ruins. It's hard to give an opinion on it until you actually play it. The maps in Splatoon 3 are actually a bit of a controversy for hardcore players, since many of them are pretty similar and quite linear. Very choke pointy. I'd love to see something like Kelp Dome return, my favorite Splatoon map. But everyone has a different opinion on what a good map is, and maybe these new specials will mix things up and make existing maps a bit more dynamic and exciting. The most exciting addition for me are the special Salmon Run events. There's extra work, where you and a team will face five, count them, five waves. Similar to Big Run, you're ranked by how many eggs you nab. And of course, you will get a sticker for your troubles. And on March 4th, we have our next Big Run event at Inkbot Academy. Nintendo has finally introduced a new King Salmonid, Horoboros, or Tatsu in Japanese. It looks like a flying Asian-style dragon. Considering how annoying flying salmon are, having an entire boss dedicated around the flying idea is pretty scary. I mean, how am I supposed to fight this thing? I'm glad we are moving away from Kohozuna, but it's very easy to implement and even tougher, harder to defeat boss. Will we be longing for the days of Kohozuna soon? We'll see. I'm not playing Splatoon 3 every day anymore, but it's a great game to just jump into every now and then. I was on Team Milk Chocolate and we got bodied. Sorry, other Milk Chocolate fans. Oh, and I almost forgot the Splatoon 3 soundtrack is coming in March with the art book following in April. The art books especially are always incredible with a ton of lore details. They really are a must for hardcore Splatoon fans. Vanillaware is having a 20th anniversary event in Tokyo on March 25th and 26th. It will showcase some art from their games and have some exclusive merch that will be later available online. I'll try to check it out if I can. I'm not a big Vanillaware guy. I love their art, but haven't played many of their games. I do love Muramasa, a game that desperately needs to be put on Switch. Though really, they should put all their games on Switch. But I know they are a small team that probably dedicates their time to whatever new game they're working on. 
it's just weird for the definitive version of Muramasa to be stuck on the Vita. I will try to swing by the event if I have some time. Normally, I do the Japanese gaming phrase of the week or tweet of the week here, but I've decided to retire those segments because honestly, I don't like preparing it ahead of time. Instead, I want to do a new mini segment called This Week in Tokyo or something. I'll come up with a better name later. I post a ton of awesome things on Twitter and Instagram that I don't mention on the podcast, which is ironic since I made the social media accounts to promote the podcast. So I want to try to talk about some of my stuff from Twitter and Instagram here. Recently, I've been hitting up the game stores to see their new displays. This is always good to do a day after the Nintendo Direct since Japanese stores will have pre-order boxes and posters for the freshly announced games. In Japan right now, you can see pre-ordered boxes for Metroid Prime Remastered, Tears of the Kingdom, and even Pikmin 4. Always great photo material. I also hit up Sudogaya in Shinjuku and found some fun things there, like a TV tuner for the Nintendo DS that apparently still works. I also found some cleaning spray for the Famicom Disk System that's about $40. Really, you're just paying for the box, I suppose. Valentine's Day passed, and my wife got me a lot of Nintendo-themed chocolate. There's a Godiva and Animal Crossing collab, plus one between Mary's and Pokemon. The Pokemon chocolate are really amazing. Each box is themed around a Pokemon, like Bulbasaur or Pikachu or Mewtwo, and all the chocolate inside has some design that relates to the Pokemon. Bulbasaur has chocolate shaped like leaves with a matcha flavor, and the Charmander chocolate has strawberry, as you'd expect. In Tokyo around Valentine's Day, there are always chocolate fairs where you can buy a lot, but I went to one and the Pokemon chocolate was sold out. But I can always count on my wife to do the impossible. Well, let's wrap it up. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. Leave a five-star review as well. It helps with visibility. This podcast is also available on YouTube, so you can watch and like and subscribe in there. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find the links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and on social media. If there's anything you want me to talk about or cover, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be on March 12th. When that episode is out, Zelda will be a mere two months away. See you next time. Matane! Matane!